So I'm a sucker for a good love story. And because of that, I love being able to perform weddings. Uh, A lot of pastors don't do weddings or think of them as a burden, but I actually love them. But I don't love weddings because of receptions. Uh, In fact, receptions are my nightmare. Uh, I can't dance. I'm super white. I have no rhythm. And watching other people who can't dance kind of feels like a form of torture to me. And so I I love weddings. I don't love the receptions. I actually love uh, the ceremonies. And I think to to be able to be a part of that and to be able to perform that, um, there isn't much higher of an honor uh, that that I get to have when it comes to, to family and friends. But every time I do a wedding, one thing I'm super hesitant about is when couples want to write their own vows. Now, I always give them options. Like, we go through, here's what the wedding could look like. It's, it's really up to you, and, and we kind of work through it. But every time the vows come up, I'm slightly terrified that they're going to want to write their own. And I give them options. We can do kind of prescripted ones, or maybe you could write your own. I try not to say it too loud, hoping that they'll ignore me. Because deep down inside, like, I really don't want them to do this because I'm terrified. I always think it's going to end up being like the scene in Wedding Crashers. It's like one of the first scenes in the movie. Do you guys remember that? So they're standing up there, and the groom says, I take you to be my wife, my best friend, and my first mate through sickness and health, clear skies and squalls. And the bride responds, I take you to be my best friend and my captain, to be your anchor and your sail, your starboard and your port. And I feel like a lot of times when, when people are saying they want to write their own vows, it ends up looking just like that. And so I do everything I can to convince people, do not write your own vows. Now, some of you, uh, you're married and you wrote your own vows, and I'm not judging you. I promise I'm not judging. I'm sure they were beautiful, and it changed everybody's lives. Uh, I just know that when my wife and I got married and it was an option for us, there was no way I was writing my own vows. Not because I don't love her immensely, but because I love her immensely. I have a master's in English, and I'm 100% sure that I would have sounded like a moron. I would have said, I love you because your face is pretty and you read good. And so I knew for a fact that I wasn't going to do write my own vows. There's no way I could figure it out. And so that's one of the things I kind of try to steer people away from unless they really insist. And when it comes to vows, there are two types of people. There's my brother who finished them minutes before the wedding and was writing them on his arm before he went down there. Uh, There's also a friend of mine who wrote, I was in love with you before I was ever attracted to you. Now, I wasn't doing this wedding, but my friend was, and he called him up and was like, hey, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, I get what you're trying to say, probably should cut that uh, from the wedding. And I think the reason why I'm hesitant for people to write their own vows is because I'm, I'm nervous for them. I'm so nervous that in their attempt to share their love that they'll make fools of themselves. And so if someone chooses to write their own vows, I encourage them to make sure not to hold anything back not to be nervous about the people that are listening and just give everything they have to those vows. And for every person like my brother or my friend who wasn't attracted to his wife, uh, there are my friends Elliot and Jen. A few years ago, I got to do their wedding, uh, and Elliot is my childhood best friend. Um, And it was one of the most amazing weddings I've ever been to. But during their premarital counseling, we started talking about vows, and they insisted that they write their own. I've known Elliot since I was four, so I told him very clearly that I thought it was a terrible idea, mostly because I know, I know him. I knew what he was going to say. This is the same guy that growing up dropped a chicken sandwich on the locker room floor and then ate it. Uh, he's the same guy who tried to electrocute himself in math class by putting a tinfoil gum wrapper into an outlet. And he's the same guy who once threw up in his hands while riding a bus and held it the whole entire ride and didn't tell anyone. And so thinking about him riding vows was terrifying. But even though I insisted, they still decided uh, that's what they wanted to do, even his wife. So when the wedding day came, uh, I was kind of nervous. But of all the things that happened that day, the thing that I remember the clearest is something Jed said in her vows. 
she started by, by telling the story about how they met. They met at the gym, and she was immediately attracted to Elliot, but she thought he was a meathead. But after giving him a chance, she realized that there was something special about him. She continued to share a beautiful story about the ups and downs of their relationship, and then ended by looking at Elliot with tears streaming down her face, and she said, thank you for loving me. And there wasn't a dry eye in the audience. It was beautiful. And I think about that moment all the time. I actually have a picture from their wedding up in our house. And every time I see that picture, I think about that line, thank you for loving me. You know, it was clear that a lot of emotion went into that statement. It wasn't just about love. It was thank you for loving me in my brokenness. It was thank you for loving me when I didn't deserve it. It was thank you for loving me unconditionally. It was thank you for loving me even though I didn't know if I was lovable. But she summed it all up with that word love. We're in week three of our series called Jesus Is. And each week we're reading a story out of the book of John. So first week we were in John 1, second week we we're in John 2. And today we're going to be in John 3. And we talked about how in John 1 Jesus is grace and truth. He's an equal balance of both because that's what we need in our lives. Week two, we talked about how Jesus is impacted by our burdens, that, that he sees these burdens that we deal with on a day-to-day and a weekly basis, and, and those matter to them, and he cares about those. And today, we're talking about how Jesus is love. Now, some of you are already groaning on the inside, and I get that. You know, when you think about Jesus and love, it's one of those things that you kind of think is pretty cheesy. Um, we start talking about, you imagine Jesus wandering through the streets with hearts for eyes and like hugging people, right? Like that's how we think about love when it comes to Jesus. And a lot of you would say the characteristic that you like the least about Jesus is the love part. Because the version that we often share in the church or even outside the church is kind of weak or passive. But today we're not talking about the cheesy kind of love that you see in the notebook or everything Nicholas Sparks ever did. We're talking about life-changing love. And so my hope today is that you walk away knowing that Jesus loves you, but that you have a better understanding of just how big that is. That you know the word love isn't abstract or passive or cheesy, but it's strong and powerful. And because it's strong and powerful, that Jesus is worth following. So let's jump into John 3. And read what John writes about the love of Jesus. And before I begin, and I want to say this every single week, is that there are times when we're going to be preaching on something or talking about something, and you're going to have questions. You're going to have doubts. And to be honest, you're going to hear some things that you're like, I don't even like that. And so what we want to encourage you to do is don't just listen here, but join a collective. That's our weekly small groups that get together, and we talk about these things. We read this again, and it's not an agenda. It's not Michael wrote questions that we have to talk to. We literally read just the scripture, and then we open it up. And we let people talk and ask. And so today, as you, as you listen and as you learn and as you experience this, we encourage you, if you have questions or doubts or fears or whatever it may be, check off Join and Collective. We'd love to get you plugged in because that's the best way to hear and then actually have a conversation. So we're going to start in John 3, verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can open up. It'll be on the screen as well. And this is how John begins writing this story. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you are doing if God were not with him. 
Now, a Pharisee is a religious leader. It's someone who knew the law, the law being like the 600 plus commandments given in the first five books of the Bible. And as we learned two weeks ago when we talked about Jesus' grace and truth, the Pharisees are heavy on truth but struggle with grace. And John writes that he came at night. And this is really interesting because Pharisees spent most of their time, time trying to prove that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. They spent most of their time trying to trip him up, ask him questions that they didn't think he could answer. And so the fact that Nicodemus is coming at night is because he's trying to hide the fact that he wants to interact and ask Jesus questions. And he goes at night because he's doing it in secret. There's something about Jesus that's intrigued Nicodemus to the point of kind of turning away from uh, of his life and, and his job and his career as a Pharisee to sit down with Jesus and ask him a few questions. He even calls him rabbi, which means teacher. And at the end of that, he kind of passively acknowledges that Jesus is God. He said, well, we think you came from God, and we can see that God is with you. The reality is he's wanting to know if Jesus is God, as he's claimed. The story continues in John 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus jumps right in. Nicodemus doesn't really get to ask that question. He doesn't really try to figure out who Jesus is. They don't kind of dance around the topic. Jesus jumps right in and says, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And when he says kingdom of God, he's talking about heaven. Another way you'll read it in the Bible is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying, No one can get to heaven unless they are born again, unless they are made new. Nicodemus responds in John 3, 4, How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into a mother's room to be born. All the women here are like, yeah, that's terrible. Like, that's awful. And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Jesus continued, You should not be be surprised at at me saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. When Jesus talks about being born of the water and the Spirit, he's talking about something called baptism. Baptism literally translates, the Greek word baptizo literally translates into this word immersion, to be dunked into water. Baptism being the symbolic act of the death and burial of your old self and the resurrection of your new self to be made new. And the reason why we know he's talking about baptism is because in John 1, John wrote that, that John the Baptist was baptizing people and they were talking about the, the rebirth and, and being made new by water. And so as we read this story, we realize that this theme of baptism, this theme of water and being made new, continues through the story. In John 1, 26, going back to week one, uh, uh, Jesus says, I baptize with water, or sorry, uh, John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John's talking about Jesus. John the Baptist is saying, hey, I'm baptizing with water right now, but Jesus is coming. And it actually says in Luke 3.16, which is another account of this same story, Luke, who was also there, writes in Luke 16, John answered them all, again, John the Baptist, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist, in this point, is making it clear that kind of up to that moment, baptism was kind of a ritual. It was something that a lot of Jewish followers did, just as kind of like a symbolic way of being one with God. But as we read last week in John 2, the only way your sins could be atoned for was through sacrifice and through animal sacrifice. And all of this in John 3 is saying, hey, like we know we do animal sacrifices and we know we've got the baptism of John, but in the, in the future, eventually this will all kind of come together. And John the Baptist is letting his followers know this is kind of a symbol now, but Jesus will make it powerful because the Holy Spirit will be involved. Once Jesus dies and resurrects from the dead, baptism won't just be about water anymore. The first instance that we see of, of baptism of water and the Spirit, tying these two things together, is in the book of Acts. This is the story of the church just starting. So it's the beginning of how the church began. Jesus has died on a cross. He has rose from the grave. He's actually come back to his followers and told them to go and make disciples and then ascended into heaven. And his followers, these guys who've been following him for the last few years trying to figure out, is Jesus the Son of God, is actually teaching to a crowd. And they're talking about how Jesus is the good news. It's the good news that he came to die for us, to pay a debt for us, and that we can't pay. And as they share this story to a crowd of thousands of people, they're cut to the heart. They hear for the first time that Jesus died for them. They hear for the first time that Jesus resurrected from the dead just like he had promised, just like the Old Testament said was going to happen. And so they're cut to the heart and they ask Peter, okay, Peter, if this is true, what do we do? In Acts 2.38, Peter replies, repent, which means to turn away. It's like a 180 degree. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter tells thousands of people that day that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be made new, Repent and be baptized. Be made new by the water and the Spirit. The story continues. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe, how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Nicodemus, uh, he's confused. And it's kind of understandable because this is new. This is a different teaching. This is Jesus taking it a step further. But Jesus kind of pushes back. And the reason why Jesus pushes back is because Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means his job is to know the Old Testament. And he knows the Old Testament has over 600 prophecies saying, eventually a Messiah will come. A Savior will come. Someone will come to redeem us, to buy back that sin. We won't have to do sacrifices anymore. And Nicodemus, of all people, should know that. And so Jesus is standing right in front of him. He's saying, hey, that's me. 
You should know that. You've read that. You've seen what I've done. You know what I'm talking about. And Jesus makes it clear. No one will experience the kingdom of heaven unless they believe. And they have to respond to that to be made new. So all of that, everything we just read, is a precursor for John 3.16. Now, this is probably the most popular verse in the Bible. If you've ever been to church before, you've heard that before. If you ever ended up in Sunday school at some point, that's usually the first verse they want you to hear. It's one of those things that, you know, when Tim Tebow was popular before he disappeared off the planet, it was like all over his eye blacks. Like, John 3.16 is one of those things that you've probably seen before, and maybe you've even heard it before. And the reality is it's probably the most popular verse in the Bible, And so Jesus says, no one can experience heaven unless they are made new by the water and the spirit. And here's why that matters. Here's here's what that that is leading to in John 3, 16. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. The root of everything that he has said is love. The root of his desire to spend eternity with, his, with him is his love for us. And he didn't love us because he looked around and realized no one else would do it. This wasn't begrudgingly. He loved us so much that he gave his son, that God gave his son, and Jesus gave up his own life. It's a gift. And the reality is there are no strings attached. And the reason why we know that's true is because it's up to us to accept that gift. It's not like the sweater your mom gets you at Christmas that you really don't want to wear, but you have to put it on in front of her to pretend like you love it. That's not the gift that Jesus is giving. We have the right to reject it or accept it. But John wants us to know that Jesus' desire, his dream, his hope, is to spend eternity in heaven with us because he loves us. And the story continues in John 3, 17 through 21. For God not, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their, e- their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So why does Jesus love us so much that he would give up his own life? It's because he doesn't want us to be condemned. It's because he doesn't want us to live in darkness. It's because he wants us to spend eternity with him forever. I know that's kind of hard to really think about. A lot of the times when we tie Jesus' love to something, it's usually to condemnation. But Jesus is saying, here's what you need to do because I love you. And because I love you, I want you to be in the light. I want you to have eternity with me. 
God's love for us is so immense that he sent his son to earth to live a perfect life, to be tortured and beaten and killed. And he did this to save the world. He did this to save the world from our own selves. Jesus is the embodiment of love. In John 15, 13, it says this, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. There is no greater example of love than what Jesus did for us. There's no greater example, there's no greater moment, there's no greater thing than than what Jesus did to die on a cross for us so that we could hopefully respond and spend eternity with him. But the really crappy part about it all is that it's just not, it isn't just about Jesus' love for us. If that was all that mattered, if that was the only thing, we would all get to spend eternity in heaven with him. But God has given us free will. He's given us the right to choose or deny what we do with that love. What John is saying is that Jesus' love for you is so much greater than any other love you'll ever experience, than any other level of love that exists. And if that's true then we should follow him. Does Jesus love you enough for you to change your life? Does Jesus love you enough for you to follow him? Does Jesus love you enough for you to take that step and to be baptized? Does Jesus love you enough for you to love people the same way? The answer is yes. He does. But it's still up to us to respond. And some of you, you're in that place today. You're skeptical. Maybe you've heard that Jesus loves you, but you weren't quite sure what that meant. Some of you, to be honest, don't even believe it's true. And that's okay. But for those of you who have never heard that or maybe felt that you've never made that decision to be made new we want you to know that God loved you so much that before we ever existed he sent his son to die for us and you don't have to be perfect to accept that gift you don't have to fully understand it you can still be doubtful and skeptical You just have to say yes. And if you're in a place where you're ready to do that, or really just want to learn more of what that looks like, I would love to talk to you. I've had the opportunity over the last few weeks to have conversations about people who are experiencing this for the first time, and they're not sure what to do. One of the things I always encourage them to do is let's read. Let's learn why it matters. Let's make decisions. And so if you're one of those people and you want to learn more or you just want to talk about it, that's what the connection card's for. Check off baptism. Let's talk. I would love to talk to you even more about how much Jesus loves you.
Now, some of you, you're nodding your head because you would say that you've accepted that gift, that you recognize that Jesus loves you, although we don't understand the full scope. It's something that you've said, yes, I have that in my life. You've made the decision to let Jesus be the Lord of your life, to to lead you, to be your savior, to save you from your own sin. And you've made that decision. You would say, hey, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. And so for those of us who fall into that category, it makes me wonder, what does it look like to love someone in such a way that it makes them cry out and say, thank you for loving me? It makes me wonder, how do we love Frederick that way? How do we love our neighbors that way? How do we love our friends and coworkers and family in a way that they cry out, thank you for loving me? That's kind of a trick question because we know what that looks like. It's putting others before ourselves. Another really popular uh, thing that happens at weddings is people will read 1 Corinthians 13, and it tells us what love is. It says love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, love is not proud, love does not dishonor others, love is not self-seeking, love is not easily angered, love keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices in truth, love protects, love trusts, love hopes, love always perseveres, and love never fails. And when Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 13, we love to read this at weddings, but how do you think Paul knows what real love looks like? It's Jesus. Paul is writing about his own life. Paul is writing about his own experience with God and how how Jesus has been patient and kind, how, how Jesus has persevered, how Jesus never fails, how Jesus protects and trusts. The example isn't Paul. The example is Jesus. And the root of all that is that Jesus' love for us is so strong that his own life came second. That's how we love people. That's how we love a community. John 15, 12, uh, Jesus says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Some of you are here today, and you're hearing this for the first time. You're you're experiencing what, what Jesus said his love looks like for the first time. And I want you to know that it's true that there are a lot of people here in this room that would say, yes, absolutely, I've experienced that in my own life. A lot of you are trying to figure out, what do I do with that? The answer isn't keep it in. The answer isn't contain it to this space. The answer is to go out and love each other as Jesus loved us, to put other people first. And I hope we do that as individuals, as a group of people, and as a church. I hope we love people in a way that changes lives and points people towards Jesus so that they can be made new. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray.
God, thank you so much um, that you love us. But God, it isn't an abstract feeling. It's not something um, that we, we can't quantify, but God, we, we, we know what that love looks like. That you love us to a point of dying on a cross for our sins. And you love us to the point of putting us first, even though we definitely don't deserve it. God, I pray that's something that we realize every day. God, that we feel that every day. And God, I just pray as people and as a church, as a community, that we could love people in that way as well. That our love for our community and our neighbors and our friends and family is so strong that people cry out, thank you for loving me. And then we get to tell them that Jesus' love for them is even greater. God, thank you for all you do for us. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.